Well, Psalm 17. You know, I, I want to just address something before we get into it tonight, into the study. I said a few things last week um, about hearing the Lord and, uh, you know, specifically about God speaking to us, how to hear the Lord. And, and we, we talk about this from time to time. But what I want to invite you all to do, because there were some questions that came up after the fact. Um, Any time that I am teaching something that you have a, a reaction to negatively, I'm not sure if I can track that, I'm not sure if I buy that, I just first encourage you to go straight to the Word and compare what I said to what the Word says. If I'm wrong, or if I'm off, or if I'm misunderstanding something, then the second thing you do is you come and tell me, hey, I don't think that's saying what you were saying and saying. Um, and I'll explain to you how you're wrong. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. I, you know, we are all students here. I, was, I had a great conversation today with Ed Smelter of uh, Bridges for Peace, and he was the one who led the, the recent Israel tour, and I was just talking to him about, and he made a comment, he noticed that I had my notebook out everywhere we went, that I was journaling a lot, and I said, you know, I go to Israel, I'm a student. I don't, it doesn't matter how many times I go, I'm a student, and I feel the same way every time I open up the pages of Scripture. I am no expert. I'm a student. I've shared here before that I may be one or two days ahead, you know, study-wise, from what you get tonight. But we are students of the Word together, and we seek, first and foremost, to hear God's Word, not man's opinion. I will occasionally give my opinion, and when I do, I'll try to say, look, this is my opinion. But otherwise, let's look at the Word, compare everything you hear with what is written here, with what's contained, and uh, if there's any discrepancies, then let's, let's look at it together, because I need to see these things as well. We're in Psalm 17. We're just going to do three psalms tonight. thought I'd ease up on you a bit. After last week's, what was it, five? Psalms 17, 18, and 19. I'll give you a little outline to follow through all three of these psalms. And we're in a section now that I'll explain more in a few minutes. But we're in a, a section of the psalms, kind of a, a subsection. Remember I told you that you can divide the Psalms into five books. And we're in book one, which correlates in many ways in the Torah with Genesis. So we're in the kind of the Genesis of the Psalms, book one of the Psalms. But within that book, we're in a subsection. And in this subsection, we have three Psalms tonight that, that flow hand in hand. In fact, they really flow hand in hand with what we talked about Sunday in Psalm 16. It kind of rolls, continues onward. Uh, the Psalms are so well placed. I used to always think they were just random. You know, um, certainly not chronological because there are times we're seeing David write about something in his young life that's placed later and whatever. The Psalms are not random. I believe that there is a Holy Spirit organization, even to the placement of the Psalms. And I'm beginning to see that as, they, as we walk this out, as we follow one to the next. Well, Psalm 17 is a psalm of prayerful determination. Prayerful determination. Psalm 18 is a psalm of prophetic deliverance. Prophetic deliverance. And then Psalm 19 is a psalm of practical declaration. So prayerful determination, prophetic deliverance, and practical declaration. And that's kind of our working outline for tonight. So Psalm 17, in verse 1, Psalm 17, a psalm of prayerful determination. David is writing, we know this is a prayer of David. And he writes in verse 1, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment, or literally vindication there, 
Come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You have tested me and you find nothing. I have purpose that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. This is the first prayer in the Psalms. First time we see in the heading, if you look at the heading there of Psalm 17, a prayer of David. And David is praying. Now you could look at many of the Psalms and say, well, isn't he praying in these? This one is listed specifically as a prayer. Written that way, with prayer in mind. And it's a prayerfully determined prayer. David, in in praying this, is praying the prayer literally of an innocent man. I'm an innocent man. There are charges against me, but they're charges that are unfounded and not fair. And David does the right thing. He prays about it. He takes the unjust charges directly to the judge of all the earth, who will always judge rightly. He takes it to the Lord in prayer. We don't know when it was that David wrote this. Because of its placement in the Psalms, some believe perhaps it was while he was on the run from Saul. He wrote a lot during those those years. But this much we can know for certain about David. This was a man who was familiar with accusations and attacks. Which is kind of good to know when you come up against that yourself. This is someone who relates to being attacked for no just reason. He did nothing wrong when Saul was chasing him down. He did nothing wrong when his own son Absalom would try to usurp the throne. He didn't deserve the sons of Goliath coming after him late in life. And there were many times throughout David's career as a man after God's own heart where he was attacked, where people went after him, where he was accused. And it's like, you know, let me ask you, have you ever had this feeling? I'm just trying to do what God wants me to do here. And you're getting burned for it. I'm just trying to follow his lead in my life and you're getting chewed on for it. David gets it. Now, Psalms like this one, Psalm 17, when I was a younger man, I didn't get them. I didn't understand prayers like this. uh, Perhaps because I was young and I really didn't think I had any enemies. And also because at that point in my life, I really hadn't experienced being unfairly accused of things. As you get older, you recognize this. That if you choose in your life to do anything publicly, if you're going to stand out in any way, shape, or form, you are going to be challenged. If you get into the game, you're going to take hits. I don't say that to discourage you from getting into the game. I'm just saying, prepare for it. Assume it's going to happen. You are going to be taken on by people. Jesus said in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Did you catch what he said? Blessed are you. When people are scorning me, I don't feel blessed. It doesn't feel good to have anyone turn on you or say negative things about you. And yet Jesus says, look, look, you purpose to follow me. You keep your eyes on me. You follow my lead And even when you're taken on by people unjustly, you will be blessed. The blessing will come. David recognizes this firsthand, so he pours out his heart in this prayer. Continue on in in verse 6, he says, I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. 
Incline your ear to me, hear my speech. I just love this about David. He prayed confidently. I, I come to you, Lord, because you hear me. No one else is listening, but I know that I know that you hear me. Let me ask you, when you pray, do you know that? I mean, do you pray knowing that you are heard? Or are you throwing words out there into the vast abyss wondering if there's, you know, Lord, if you're there, if you're listening, if you're not busy on the other side of the world helping Rachel get home from Ghana, if you could help me out here, do you believe that you've been heard when you pray to the Lord? One of the unfortunate things that's happened over years and years of religion kind of impeding the progress of the church is that we have taken prayer as a religious thing. And it's not. It's communicating with the Father. It's just talking to God like you would talk to a friend, a spouse, a loved one. But you're talking to the Creator of all things. You're talking to the power of the entire universe. You're talking to a Father who is intimately connected with every aspect of your life. And if you pray like David, saying, I call upon you for you will answer me, that's believing prayer, and that's the kind of prayer God will answer. Unbelieving prayer, prayer where you're just taking a shot in the dark, the Lord doesn't respond. Why? Because prayer is not a lucky charm. You know, prayer is not rubbing the rabbit's foot. It's not wishing upon a star. It's actual, real, tangible communication with God. It's nothing less than that. You know, again, it's funny. In church, a lot of things have been said about prayer. We have lots of catchphrases and poetic lines and song lyrics expressing aspects of prayer. And sometimes in doing all that, we mysticize this thing that is no more mystical than Les and I standing up together after church and having a conversation. And me sharing my heart with a brother. Then Cheryl and I in the evening talking through the process of the day. That's prayer. It's just talking to the Lord. Don't make it more or less than it really is. You know, don't make it more than it is. That is some kind of religious exercise. But don't make it less than it is. You're talking to God. And He's there. And He's with you. And David knows He's heard. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he, come, he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And yes, we repeat that verse over and over and over because God would remind us, come to me in faith. That's the language that I want you to learn. Trust me, that's how I want you to speak. David prays, I will call upon you for you will answer me. Let me tell you, Pastor Rick won't always answer you. You might have to leave me two, three, four messages. A handful of emails. I may not get... I get backlogged. I'm one guy. And I, there are times where it's been three days and I'm like, I've, I've got you know, emails just going down this long list and, and I'm trying to get back. But here's the good news. God will answer you. The Lord is always available. And He's the one you need to go to anyway. I might just mess you up more. God always answers prayers prayed Believing, I think about Jesus and the apostles. It came up over, came up from Bethany, up over the Mount of Olives, and as they're coming down, there were fig trees that abounded in that area at the time. And oftentimes, when people were traveling, and especially poorer people, as Jesus was homeless and poor, he comes up over the hill, and they would just—you could grab a fig off off a tree. You could whatever food was there. You could take the grains of the grains off the heads of the wheat. But Jesus goes to get a fig tree, he's hungry, and there's a fruitless tree there. Nothing growing on it. 
This was, we know, in the springtime, so it's what you would call the early figs. They weren't the tastiest figs. They're these really kind of hard, green figs that were good sustenance. They were definitely healthy, and they would sustain you, but they weren't that tasty. They didn't have this on this tree. The tree was completely barren, and Jesus curses it, and it immediately withers. What's interesting to me is the conversation that follows. Matthew 21.20 says, Seeing this, the disciples were amazed. And they asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it'll happen. Have you ever tried that? I haven't been successful at it yet, but I guarantee if you hear Mount Erie go splashing into the ocean, you'll know. (laughs) Jesus says, all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, now how does that work? I mean, believing. Okay, so I'm going to pray now and I've got to get my belief together. Lord, please give me that new BMW. I was believing Him for it. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Believing prayer, faithful prayer, comes out of the heart of someone who is faithful. It's not something you work up in a moment. It's something that is a part of who you are. This is the whole uh, fruitless fig tree example. Jesus sees this fruitless fig tree and He compares it to prayer. Why? What does it have to do with faithless prayer? Faith yields fruit. Where there's faith, there will be fruit. Faith is a practical thing, gang. And our faith in God, as it grows, as it develops, as we learn to trust the Lord, there will be fruit of that in our lives. The tree will produce. Faith produces. And Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.21. He said, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've heard that before. But he goes on, he says, If I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I don't know if I should die and be with Christ. That sounds great. But if I'm going to live on, I want this life to bear fruit. That's the life that when praying receives answer to prayer. The fruitful life. The faithful life. The prayer offered in faith. Because if you're walking in faith, the very things you're going to be praying about will be in alignment with the Father's will. And that's what He wants to answer. Well, continuing on, verse 7. So David has this great faith, this determined prayer... And he says, wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand from those who rise up against them. There's that word again, refuge. Refuge. You know, the believer's refuge is not when the door closes behind you at the end of a long day. might feel like that sometimes. You ever had that sensation? The door, boom, you just go, ah, I'm going to have to see the jerks until tomorrow. That is not refuge. A believer's refuge is not on the couch in front of the TV wondering who's going to win American Idol. It's not found on the bar stool or on a hike or fishing on a lake. The believer's refuge is at the right hand of the Father. And this is where David is going. You are my refuge. He says in verse 8, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Before we go on, apple of the eye. That's interesting. The word apple there. Literally, it's pupil. You know, we use the, the uh, catchphrase there, or the, or the synonym, apple, for, for pupil, but it's, keep me as the pupil of the eye. The Hebrew word, note this, is ishan. Ishan. Why does that matter? Because it means both pupil and center of attention. 
As the pupil is the center of the eye, so Ishan can mean the center, the focal point of attention. But what's interesting to me is Ishan is a derivative of another Hebrew word, and that's the word Ish, which is simply man. Ish is the word for man. The word for man. And man is similar. In the eyes of God, man is like the pupil. Man is dark. Man is sometimes empty. But man is at the center of God's attention. Center of God's loving attention. David recognizes this and he points it out. Lord, keep me as the pupil of your eye. He says, hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart. With their mouth they speak proudly. And I've got to point this out. The word unfeeling, or the phrase unfeeling heart, literally is fat. Chaleb in the Hebrew. Fat. Read, read it that way. They have closed their fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. What's he saying? Well, let me give you the best example I can find. You may recall there was a judge in Judges chapter 3 by the name of Ehud. He was the left-handed warrior who gained access to Moab's King Eglon, right? He goes up into the chamber of King Eglon as though to present a gift to the king. And rather than present a gift, this left-handed warrior draws his, his, with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into Eglon's belly. The Bible says, Judges 3.22, The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. It's great memory verse. <laughs> I want you to get a picture of this, though, because David says... Save me from my deadly enemies who have closed their fat. And that's the idea. He feels so enclosed. It's as though, boy, you could be holding on to the sword of the Spirit. You could have the word in your hands and you're trying to fight the battle, but your, the sword goes in, but then the fat starts closing around you. Oh, it's gross. It's disgusting. And it's hard to get away from. And David says, this is how I feel. It's congealing around me. My enemies congeal. The pride of the wicked feels like it's closing in, David prays. And in verse 11 he says, They have now surrounded us in our steps. They've set their eyes to cast us down to the ground, i.e. to the grave. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. Now, pause for a moment. Something just changed. Do you recognize that the attack has just become far more personal? It went from they, the generic enemies out there, to he. Now all of a sudden David is saying, confront him. He is like a lion. Bring him low. It's not the nameless mob of enemies. It's one person. And there are those who believe that's Saul that he's talking about there. And David goes after this individual And I want you to understand something here. When attacks come, they are not the problem. He is the problem. They are not. He is. Again, for David, he was Saul. For you and me, he is our adversary. He is the devil. He is Satan. And he is the problem. They are not. In David's case, do you suppose every fighting man in Saul's army in Israel was against David? How could they be? Most of them probably didn't even know him. 
If they did, they probably knew who he was or had a vague sense of him. Maybe one or two fought with him at a time. But they're all encircled around David as he's there in the cave of Engedi or the cave of Adullam or hiding out in the mountains. And you can't tell me that every fighting man in Israel was anti-David. They were doing the bidding of he, which was Saul. What's the point? We need to remember that those who attack us, when we are truly innocent, are functioning in the service of the enemy. Sometimes unwittingly. Sometimes they don't even realize what they're doing. Someone may be going after you in your personal life, and they're not even keying in, cluing in, gaining perspective that they're doing his bidding. They're actually functioning on the side of Satan. And I absolutely believe if they could see who their master was in those moments, they would stop what they were doing immediately. Wouldn't you? Wait a minute, Pastor. Are you assuming I've been in the service of Satan? You know what? Anytime we go under some, after someone unfairly, yeah, we're serving the wrong master. When we go on the attack for no just cause, and sometimes even when we think we have a just cause, it... I see it happen in the church over and over. And it may be because of old wounds that someone is attacking or reacting. It may be because of selfishness. Sometimes it's self-preservation, whatever. But when Christians attack Christians, we are suddenly in the service of the real enemy who is the devil. It's a he problem, not a them problem. We could give each other an awful lot of grace if we would recognize when we're in conflict one with another that we're not the problem. He is. He's the one causing this in marriage. You know what? We're not the problem. He is. He's trying to stir up. In family, the kids are not the problem. They may feel like it, but they're really not the problem. He is. And in the church. Paul said, Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not being consumed by one another. Again, if you realize that you were functioning in the service of Satan, would you stop? Well, personalize the Psalms, gang. Personalize them. Recognize that you may be the they in the psalm. You may be the one on the attack, even not recognizing it. Think about that. Maybe that's something you ought to pray about. Each of us, am I on the attack? Am I going after someone unfairly right now? Is it me? Lamentations 3.39, great verse. Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. Boy, that just tears right into judgment, doesn't it? In view of my sin, what right do I have to attack anybody or complain about anything? Psalm 139, David says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. It's not always easy to walk in the everlasting way. That's why we go to the Father and say, You search me, Lord. Would you help me recognize where I'm off base here? And where I recognize that, help me change. Now the last two verses of Psalm 17 are great. They contrast the rewards that the wicked gain and that the innocent gain. Listen to this. Going on into verse uh, 14. 
He's saying, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Lord. From men of the world, whose portion is in this life. Listen to their reward. And whose belly you fill with your treasure. Huh? They're satisfied with children. What? And they leave their abundance to their babes. What? He's talking about the wicked here. The attackers, those who have gone after him. And he's saying, check it out. I mean, they... Their bellies are filled with treasure, so they're well-fed, they're taken care of, (laughs) they're satisfied with many children, and they even get to leave a legacy. Well, man, that sounds pretty good to me. Look at verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Alright, which reward would you prefer? A healthy, happy, rich well cared for life many children to whom you can leave a legacy and that's it or to see the face of the Father to be in the presence of Jesus Christ it pales by comparison the other far rather living with Jesus being with Him that's our reward that's what we live for that's why David was not only the sweet psalmist of Israel but the man after God's own heart Because he's saying, you know, give me everything that I could even have children to leave it to. I don't want that. I just want to see you. I just want to be in your presence, Lord. Well, if you've ever felt unjustly attacked, and perhaps you're in that place right now, this psalm is a great prayer to pray. But I want you to notice one other greater thing. I told you earlier that we're in a subsection here. And it begins about Psalm 16 and runs all the way through Psalm 24. What is that subsection? It is full of messianic prophecy. These psalms are are gathered together, I believe by the Spirit, to, to present something here. Notice the placement of Psalm 17. It's wonderful. It comes right after Psalm 16 and right before Psalm 18. Which is a good place for Psalm 17 to be. And I'm talking about content wise, because Psalm 17, following on the heels of Psalm 16, this could almost be an extension of the prayer in Gethsemane. A prayer of Jesus, a determined prayer of the Son, praying to his Father. I can't say with certainty, and and please hear me, even Sunday morning we talked about Psalm 16 as a picture of the prayer in Gethsemane. I can't guarantee you that that's what Jesus prayed. It certainly fits. But Psalm 16 and Psalm 17 both are uniquely um, Jesus. In fact, Psalm 17 opens up with a problem Bible scholars can't solve. And that's these words, verse 3 again, go back there and look. You've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, and you find nothing. The word there is ball, literally means not, none, no wrongdoing whatsoever. You've looked into my heart and you have found, David says, perfection. Really? I have purposed my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent, or literally the destroyer. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Well, here's the problem. David's feet had slipped. And many times by the writing of this psalm. Prior to this psalm, David's on the run from Saul. And he goes to a place called Nob. He meets a priest there, Ahimelech. And Ahimelech says, what's going on? And David lies to him. David's on the run. You could try to justify it. Hollywood would justify it. But David says, oh no, I'm, I'm here on the bit. I'm running an errand. 
for Saul. That's, that's what this is all about. I'm, I'm on an errand for the king. That lie ends up costing Ahimelech and 85 priests of Nob their lives. Because they don't know what's really going on. David lies about it, gets his men fed and himself, and takes off from there. And Saul comes in, sends his henchmen for a great slaughter of these priests. David lied. My feet have not slipped. Come on, David. Your feet have slipped. So that kind of tells me either David is completely missing it, or perhaps perhaps these words are spoken by the Spirit about another person, perhaps about the son of David, whose feet never slipped. Only one man, only Jesus, could speak these words. Well, Psalm 17, again, is ideally placed as this determined prayer, coming before the Father, asking for protection against the enemy. Psalm 16, Psalm 17. And then we come to Psalm 18, which takes us to the other side of the attack. Psalm 18, prophetic deliverance. The heading of Psalm 18, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now, we know precisely when this psalm was written. I can tell you when it was. In fact, we've already studied this, if you were here when we studied 2 Samuel, because it's word for word identical to 2 Samuel chapter 22. It's repeated here. Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, same psalm. David, at the time of 2 Samuel 22, is 70 years old. And this older gentleman is looking back over a lifetime of deliverance. When it says, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul, David is looking back. And he's having a great moment of recognition. Now, by the way, this comes right after a singularly dangerous event in David's life. 2 Samuel 21 tells us that the three sons, four sons of Goliath come up after David. They want him dead. And so the giant wars begin. And one particular giant by the name of Ishibanab comes after David to kill him. And if not for David's helper Abishai, Abishai steps in and saves David's 70-year-old life. And if not for Abishai and his act of deliverance, David would have died right there on the battlefield at the hands of the son of Goliath. And 2 Samuel 21.17 says, Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle, so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. He's 70 years old and he still wants to fight. And he had to be rescued from himself and from this, this son of Goliath. You know... We guys have trouble accepting our weakness as we age. We don't like it. I, for one, don't appreciate having to take certain vitamins each day now. I was talking with my dad about this the other day. He had a heart attack when he was 56 years old. And he was in good shape. And it shouldn't have happened. It was, it's bizarre how it all came about. But he was telling me, you know, I was, I was at the gym in the rehab part of the, the hospital... And I'm on the treadmill and I'm doing my workout and everything. This is back, you know, 20, how many years ago was it? 20 years ago or so. Um, and Dad was on the treadmill working out. He's looking around the room going, man, these guys are old. <laughs> you know? They start to talk and he came to find out he was the oldest man in the room. They were all younger than he was. And, and he was telling me, you know, the heart attacks tend to begin anywhere from about age 46, September 21st, my 46th birthday, age 46 to about 55. And he was saying the problem is at that age, 
men tend to still be young enough in their mind, or at least in their thinking, that they think they're still impervious to things, but their bodies are not functioning like they did in their 20s or 30s. And so men are not taking care of themselves, and sometimes it takes a little heart attack, a little kick, like my dad had at 56. Now, he's in better shape now than I am, and he's in his 70s. So here's David, who finally realizes it's time to stop fighting. And he fully recognizes that for all of his great battles that he has fought, God has been his deliverer. Sometimes it takes getting to the age of 70 before you can look back over life and say, wow, it really wasn't me. I really wasn't the power that I thought I was. It was God all the time. And that's what this psalm is about. David's looking back. He's thinking through these things. And he says in verse 1, oh, this is just great. I love you, O Lord my strength. There really is wisdom in longevity. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. I don't even know if David could have written that as a young man. It's a young buck out there fighting, taking on Goliath. Of course, you may recall, he did praise God for that victory, didn't he? The man after God's own heart. But, but why is this psalm repeated from 2 Samuel 22? I mean, literally, you can track it word for word. It's, it's the same psalm. We have it twice in Scripture. Why does God do this? Just an opinion, in 2 Samuel 22, it's a song of historical deliverance. It is David writing in both situations, but he's writing and it's historical. He's looking back over his life and he's talking about how he was delivered, how he was protected, how he was saved. But I believe God places it here in this section of the Psalms because it is also a psalm of prophetic deliverance. Is this just guesswork, Pastor Rick? No. Actually, I think we have some proof of this. Uh, Paul, the apostle, reaches back to this psalm and applies it to Jesus. That this is about Jesus. He says in Romans 15, verse 8, For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles. So he's talking the circumcision, the Jewish people, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, quote, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And that comes directly out of Psalm 18. And so we have a hint here, a clue, an indication that there's something prophetic in this psalm. Read on and watch for it. The cords of death encompassed me. And the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress... I called upon the Lord and cried to God for help. And He heard my voice out of His temple and my cry for help before Him came into His ears. I think we're back in Gethsemane here. Again, the Hebrew writer, chapter 5, verse 7, gives indication of this, that He cried out and He was heard, which is exactly what David's saying here, perhaps by the Spirit of Christ. Verse 7, Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because He was angry. Really, David? Did that happen in your life? Well, he's just speaking poetically, of course. For David, yes, poetically. But what happened when Jesus cried out from the cross? Did not the earth tremble? The earthquake? 
shaking. Smoke went up out of his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. And I believe what we're seeing here. Okay, listen, we'll get to Psalm 22 next week or in a coming week where David's prophecy reads like a real-time description of the crucifixion, of Jesus crying out from the cross. And it's unmistakable. We'll see that. But, Psalm 22, we get a physical world perspective. I believe in Psalm 18 here, we're getting an exclusive, prophetic, inside look at what was going on in the spiritual realm during those dark hours of the crucifixion. What was happening spiritually? Verse 9 tells us God came down. It tells us God sped upon the wind. He was shrouded in darkness. Well, if God came down at the time of the crucifixion, what did He come to do? Save Jesus? No, just the opposite. God came down to smite Jesus. David makes mention of smoke going out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth, devoured. Coals were kindled by it. It's almost a picture there of sacrifice. Of the sacrificial lamb on the altar being completely consumed by the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross was completely consumed by the wrath of God. In that moment when He took your sin and mine, He had to be consumed like the sacrifice on the altar. And God came down then to smite Jesus. For the wrath of God to be satisfied against your sins and mine. Jesus had to take it all. Which is why Isaiah said in Isaiah 53:4, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, our sorrows He carried, yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. God came down in cover of thick darkness to smite Jesus. And... And God came down to split the veil. I love the description of the splitting of the veil. Listen to it. Matthew 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. What did David say? That God came down shrouded in darkness. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up His Spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. David's description, again, would have to at best be poetic of God's deliverance. And not actual, historically speaking. But prophetically speaking, it is right on target, not only in the spirit realm, but in the physical realm, in the darkness, in the earthquake, in God having to smite him and splitting the veil. I I just can see God grabbing a hold of that temple veil at the top and ripping it. The Bible is so clear, it was a top-down splitting. But the prophecy reaches even beyond the crucifixion to the end result. Verse 12 From the brightness before Him He passed His thick clouds, hailstones, hailstones? And coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. 
And the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. And the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. I didn't see that when we studied First and Second Samuel. That during David's life, the foundations of the world were laid bare? Hey, that hasn't ever happened. Not like it will. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, He says, He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Okay, if that's speaking about Jesus, how could anybody be too mighty for Him? Because He emptied Himself and became human, setting aside His glory and allowed the attack of the crucifixion on Him. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. And He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. And there's there's a dual thing, I think, going on here. Because it's not just spiritual. Now we're getting into a physical reality worldwide. Read and compare this to Israel's deliverance in the tribulation. Revelation 6-19, through Zechariah 12-13-14. Read those and consider what David's saying. Because an immense, massive rescue, pulling them as if out of the many waters, the waters of the sea of humanity, saving and protecting that third of Israel, as Zechariah prophesies. The foundations of the world laid bare. The rebuke of the Lord. It all fits that horrifying time of the tribulation. By the way, when it says the foundations of the world were laid bare, I can guarantee you there's not going to be anyone touting the theory of evolution in those days. Because at that time, the foundations of the world will be laid bare. It will be clear. This was an act of creator, not an act of accident. And the prophetic nature of this psalm of deliverance speaks powerfully of the final deliverance of Israel by Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, Jesus Christ, from the day of their calamity. It beautifully, prophetically expresses the perfection of our deliverer, Jesus who comes in and saves. David is not Israel's deliverer. Jesus is. Verse 20. The Lord. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His ordinances were before me. I did not put away His statutes from me. I was also blameless with Him. Note that. You might want to circle. With Him. I was blameless with Him. And I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His eyes. That's another thing to circle. In His eyes. He sees you as clean. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. This is beautiful here. We, we know this is a psalm of David. And it can be confusing if you see David claiming to be righteous and have clean hands and be blameless and pure. I mean, dude, one word. Bathsheba. <laughs> clean hands? I think not. And yet, David's claim... To clean hands is the same claim that you have to clean hands. Clean hands by the nail-scarred hands of Jesus Christ. That you do stand, hard to believe, we stand blameless before God. As David said, blameless with Him. 
clean in my hands in His eyes is how He views us because of the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 27, For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you like my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. And that's the key. He illuminates me. He drives the darkness out of me. Ish. You know, the, the man, the, the pupil. That darkness. He drives it away. He's the light of my life. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Verse 29, For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall and, and young bravado-filled David you know, is, is rising up in the heart of this 70-year-old man saying, man, by God's power I did all kinds of things. As for God, His way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet or deer feet. And He sets me upon... My high places, the power, the strength, the deliverance, man, like the feet of a deer, able to stand on rocky, craggy, difficult places. This is what God does. This is how He strengthens and protects us and delivers us. This is the joy and the strength of someone who stands on the rock. Verse 34, He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. Now, the military might of the Deliverer is expressed, as we'll see, especially in the Great Tribulation in the last three and a half years. Verse 37, you can almost hear Jesus talking here, I pursued my enemies and overtook them. And I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me. And I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help. This is a terrifying verse. They cried for help. But there was none to save. Even to the Lord. But He did not answer them. And then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. Hey, David was the head of Israel. Who's the head of the nations? It will be Jesus Christ. A people who I, am not, who I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners, submit to me. Foreigners, fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me up above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Gang, the king is coming. The rescuer is on the way. Not the suffering servant as he was the first time around, but the great glorious king who comes the second time around. He's on the way. You know, I've got to read this to you. You've heard it before. But it's so encouraging. Again, Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven opened. 
And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I'll tell you what, anyone who thinks that that is allegorical is missing out on a great coming promise. The glorious King is on the way. If you're having a bad day, just remember that. The glorious King is coming. Deliverance guaranteed. Deliverance guaranteed. Verse 49, Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives a great deliverance to His King. He shows loving kindness to His anointed. Who is that? Well, David was anointed king, but it's the word Mashiach. He gives a great kindness to His anointed, to David and his descendants, literally there, to David's seed forever. And Mashiach is, in fact, David's seed. Jesus is God's anointed. I, Jesus, Revelation 22.16, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I've shared with you before, it's one of my favorite verses. Jesus, the root from whom David sprung, and the descendant, because he comes through David's line. Wow. Amazing. Now, we come to my favorite, or one of my most favorite psalms, Psalm 19. And it gives us three voices, three specific voices, all of which declare the existence and nature of God. So, Psalm 19, the practical declaration. And the first voice that Dave is going to give in this psalm is the voice of the cosmos. Watch this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Well, there is no speech. Nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. But verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. The speech of the heavens here is silent. And yet, it cannot be silenced. And these are wonderful words of David. You can't silence the cosmos and what it declares about God, about the existence of God. Paul again quotes from the Psalms. This time, Paul quotes directly from Psalm 19. In Romans 10, verse 18, he says, Surely they have heard, haven't they? Indeed they have. Quote, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Whose words? The words of the cosmos. The voice of the stars of the heavens. Oh, not literally, David says. You can't hear the stars talking. But all you have to do is look. And they declare God. They pour forth speech about God. In them, David writes, he has placed a tent for the sun. 
which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. It rises from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Voice of the cosmos. I was um, dropping Corey off at Safeway earlier this week and had to get out to run in and grab something in the store. As I'm walking out, an older gentleman was just getting out of his car and started talking to me, which always freaks me out when someone talks to me and I don't even know who they are. I'm like, talking to me, dude, what's up? And he goes, what is that thing in the sky? I'm like, I look up and there's nothing there. I'm thinking, okay. You know, I can see his wife getting out of the car beside him and I'm thinking, maybe you need to get him back, you know, to the home or I don't know, because there's nothing up there. And and apparently he saw in my face this look of, um, don't have a clue, and he says, that thing, that, that bright light in the sky. And I went, sun? You know, I felt like I was in kindergarten. The sun! And, and he goes, <laughs> the yellow one. And he said, yeah, the sun, we just haven't seen it in a while. And he was just making, you know, conversation about the weather. <laughs> I felt like an idiot. I'm like, oh yeah, the sun, because well, it's been raining. Oh, <laughs> that's great. I'm going to shop now. I'm going to go, dude. <laughs> I thought about that when I read, what is that bright thing in the sky? The sun that God placed in the sky. And what's remarkable, some critics of the Bible, and they try so hard. You know, God bless them, they do try hard. They come along and some have pulled this verse out and said, see, the Bible's not scientific. Because we know the sun doesn't technically rise and set, moving across the sky and going to sleep in the evening and waking up in the morning. We understand that the earth is rotating and revolving around the sun. And so they say, well, that the sun makes its circuit from one end to the other. It must be unscientific. And it's just one of those examples that the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Okay, first of all, Captain Science. The Psalms are poetic in nature. This is poetry that is being expressed. And even a scientist has the presence of mind when out on a date with his wife to say, hey, look at the beautiful sunset. He, he doesn't say, look at the residual electromagnetic spectral waves of our G2 class B star. <laughs> Isn't it luminous? You know, I mean, that's, it's poetic. It's poetry. It's song. The sun rises and sets. And David is speaking poetically. However... Not only is this psalm poetic in nature, it is perfect in nature. It's perfect. Because what David says is scientific. For any who would like to protest this verse, check this out. The earth, right now, as we sit here in Bible study, the earth is spinning at a rate of a thousand miles per hour on its axis. We are booking. And the earth is also making its orbit around the sun. As we're spinning at 1,000 miles per hour, we're making an orbit around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. Thought you were fast at 1,000 miles an hour. The sun, which is a G2 5 star, whatever that means, is traveling across the galaxy at 64,000 miles per hour. As we're spinning around it at 67,000 miles per hour, while we are particularly spinning at 1,000 miles per hour. And our galaxy is moving across the universe at the rate of 481,000 miles per hour. And you thought you were just kicking back listening to a Bible study. We are outspeeding the fastest 
racing cars on the road today. We are flying. By the way, this rate of speed is at least three times faster than my Kia can go. So we're moving right now. Put it all together, what it literally means is we are moving along at a breezy 630,000 miles per hour. So those of you who get car sick while you're reading, you might just want to put your Bibles down for a moment and look straight forward. David was right. The sun is making a circuit across the heavens. The sun is moving across our galaxy, which is moving across the universe. The Bible is not only poetic, it's perfect. It is absolutely true. The voice of the cosmos. Secondly, David then looks down and considers the voice of the commandments. Verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. Law there. The word law, Torah. First five books. It's perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple, which is good news for some of us. You know, let me just say this. I have been so amazed at the depth of wisdom that's come out of our Bible studies in the last six years. It blows my mind. The things that are revealed that we begin to understand and it is not the wisdom of man. It is the wisdom of the Word of God as spoke by the Spirit of God. If you get anything worth taking home when we gather and open the Word, it's because God is revealing amazing things to us. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. You know what that means? It means when you keep the law, it's not cumbersome, it's joyful. Doing the right thing feels right. It's good. It brings about happiness and joy and rejoicing. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You'll see better. (laughs) The fear of the Lord is clean. He says, enduring forever. Says the judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous all together. David considers the voice of the cosmos, which is silent but still speaks of the Lord, still declares the Lord. But he quickly explains that the spoken voice of the commandments of God, the Torah law, the Bible, the Word of God, is far better even than what the cosmos can declare. Yes, the universe is amazing. Yes, impressive. Yeah, we have all kinds of statistics about how fast we're moving and how many stars and how big the stars are and all that stuff that we've talked about a lot lately. But David would say, fantastic, but big deal compared to the Word of God. He says, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sin. Let them not rule over me. And then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. He says, who can discern his errors? And here's the beauty of the commandment, the voice of the commandment speaking louder than the voice even of the cosmos. Because the recognition of the vast beauty of the created universe does not guide my life in truth. It it expresses the existence of Creator God. Absolutely. But sitting up and looking at the stars does not give me insight to life. 
It doesn't guide me. It doesn't reveal to me things yet to come. Two Sundays ago, we addressed the fallacy of the astrological signs. If you recall, that the charts used for the sign given you at your birth or whatever are Babylonian, 3,000 years old, and in serious need of an update. They're completely wrong. Even if there was something to the stars, which is bogus, and the Bible's clear about that. The voice of the cosmos declares the wonder of God true enough. But better still, the voice of the commandments declare the words of God. Where the cosmos is silent, the Word of God speaks. What the cosmos cannot tell you and me about His nature, God's Word tells us. You can look up and say, wow, vast. But you look in and you say, wow, grace. Mercy. Forgiveness. Gentleness. Kindness. Compassion. These are things the stars will never tell you about God, but His Word does. But there's one last voice that speaks in this psalm. If we follow the names of God that David uses in this psalm, they're interesting. We find just one in the first six verses. The first half, the voice of the cosmos speaking, we have just one name. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The name there is El. El. It's not even Elohim. Elohim means the plurality, three or more. Elah means the duality, two. El just means one. One God. David says, and note that contrast, the heavens tell of the glory of God. They they express there is intelligent design. You look up and you say, yeah, there's got to be a God. El. But the commandments go far beyond that. The commandments tell us far more. Note that in the giving of the commandments of the law, verses 7 through 9, the name Lord now is used. The law of the Lord. Testimony of the Lord. The precepts of Yahweh is the Lord. The commandment of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh. The judgments of Yahweh. Six times. And then we get down to verse 14. Oh, Yahweh. So seven times now, in the latter half of this psalm, David doesn't say El, divine, a God, declaring that there is intelligence. Now he says Yahweh. Seven times. Yahweh. The Lord. The Lord. The Lord. And in verse 14 he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And so we come to know the character, the very voice of Yahweh. We come to recognize His voice through the Word. I've talked about hearing God. See what? If you're not in the Word, you're not going to hear God because you're not going to know what His voice sounds like. You're not going to know what it is that God would say unless you're in His Word and you you begin to recognize this sounds like God. And here at the close, David gives two more names following Yahweh. We have El, we have Yahweh, and then we have My Rock. Zuri in the Hebrew. Zuri, he'll use the word My Rock 11 times in the Psalms. Jesus is the Rock. And throughout Scripture, the picture of the Rock, it always directs us to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 28.16 Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. And Jesus said in Matthew 21, The stones which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. David calls Him the rock. 
El Yahweh, the rock. And he says, my redeemer. My redeemer. The Hebrew Goeli. The Goel. My kinsman redeemer. And the final voice of the song is not the cosmos, it's not even the commandments. The final voice is the voice of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why Psalm 19 is to me so precious. In February of 2002, I was driving along Oaks Avenue headed to Bible study. And we were in the midst of, just had started studying the book of Daniel. And this was in Anacortes. It was a Sunday night Bible study. just kind of open to whoever wanted to come. We were in the Fidalgo Bay Roasting Company. That's where the meeting was taking place. Kind of a cool place for Bible study. You know, Christians and coffee, it often works well together. So I'm driving along Oaks Avenue. And I'm thinking about the study and, um, and when, what I'm going to share. And suddenly, it was the, the, the most clear impression, pull over and read Psalm 19. Now, I didn't hear those words. It wasn't an audible spoken voice. Rick, you must now open thy Bible. And, you know, it was just, you got to read Psalm 19. Right now. Right now. Okay. And I pulled the car over to the side of the road. And I opened up my Bible. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. I, I had read that passage hundreds of times. This is not a new passage. In fact, I knew before I opened it where I was going. I knew this was about the Word. But as I read it, I had trouble seeing it because my eyes filled with tears. And I knew in that moment, and last week I was talking about knowing the will of God, hearing the voice of God. God didn't speak any words to me that day. But I'll tell you something, in that moment, that's when I knew what He had anointed me to do. And it was to teach the Word. It was in that moment, out of all my life, where I finally recognized and it was clear to me that what God wanted me to do the rest of my life was teach. Open the Word and teach the Word. And the reason why tears came to my eyes, and I was so overwhelmed, I, I can't, it's hard even to explain other than in that moment I know that the Holy Spirit came upon me to do more than I could do. To to equip me to teach in a way that I honestly had never taught before. And what was ironic to me was coming to the Bible study then, you know, I'm opening up the Bible, Daniel chapter 2, you know, and people are like, what is up with him? <laughs> well, when we finished the second chapter of Daniel that night, and a dear sister came up to me, who was very sensitive um, to the Spirit, and came up to me, she goes, what happened? <laughs> she had no idea. What happened? So what are you talking about? She goes, did you get baptized by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I just opened Psalm 19 and it was just there and it was so amazing and God came on and I'm going away. And we laughed and I, and I just shared with her that, um, but it was, it was stunning to me. What's different? What happened? And I'm like, what do you mean what's different? And you're teaching tonight. I've never heard you teach like that. Well, thanks. <laughs> you know. And it was, it was different. And when I talk about 
hearing the voice of the Lord. I shared last week, I do believe He speaks audibly from time to time that you can hear Him speak if you're still and you're listening and you're sensitive. I, I do. And I think there's so much biblically that points to that that, that we're missing the boat if we, if we don't at least accept that He is capable of speaking to us. But listening to the Lord is also about impression. It's also about being sensitive. If you're driving down the road and you have a sense that you need to pull over and read Psalm 19, just do it. You know? If you are in church on a Sunday morning and you just have a sense that, man, this, this guy behind me needs me to pray for him. Don't fear doing that. Just go back and go, is it alright if I pray for you? If you're with a friend and you just have a strong sense that you need to tell them about Jesus, do it. Because these impressions that we get are not coincidental things. They're not happenstance. It's not just, oh, a thought popped into my brain. You know what? If you're walking with Jesus Christ and you are praying that every thought be held captive by Christ, then when thoughts come in, the first thing you need to do is say, well, is this the Lord? Is it Him? Was it the Lord that asked me to pull over and open up Psalm 19 that day? I'm convinced, absolutely. And it's because I know something changed in my perspective in my life. I had battled being a teaching pastor my whole life. I had battled that. I wanted to be something else. you know, A teacher. I don't want to be a teacher. Until that day. And now, there's nothing more important to me. God does speak to us. God does impress on our hearts where He wants us to go. The voice of the cosmos is wonderful, speaking silently the existence of God. The voice of the commandments and the Word, the entirety of Scripture, is blessed because it shows us the nature and character of God. But the voice of Christ, the voice of the Spirit of Christ, speaking to you and to me, it gives life to the whole thing. Let's pray. Holy Father, as much as we accept that You spoke by Your Spirit to Your servant David, we accept, Lord, and must accept that You speak by Your Spirit to us. That You impress things upon our hearts. That You quietly encourage us along a path. That You draw us forward. And I pray, Father, again, that You will sensitize our hearts, that we might listen by the mind of Christ, that we might hear the Spirit of Christ, that in our treatment of one another, Lord, we would behave with the heart of Christ Jesus. And in our, our love, Father, we would not be servants of the enemy, never, even by mistake, even unwittingly, but that we would only and always be bondservants of Jesus Christ. I ask, Father, that You will continue to patiently teach us the word of faith. That is, Father, to speak with faith and to pray with faith. And to pray expecting and knowing that You're hearing us even as we are learning to hear You. Father, bless this fellowship and all those who cry out the name of Jesus. May we be more like You Until you come to take us home, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.